This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. Uh, good morning, good morning, good morning, or good afternoon, depending on where you're at. And I'm Todd DeVoe, and I'm here with Ian Weekly. And exciting conversation today because over the last, I don't know, year and a half or so, um, we've been talking about EOC activations and 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 the impact that's had on the staff and, and, and whatnot. And the fact that we didn't have the ability to call in for uh, mutual aid, right? Because there was everybody was activated or at least had some sort of level of activation going on. And to be able to get people from other cities and counties and states to come in to help you out uh, wasn't existed, right? So what do we do? Well, we had to lean on some contract workers and and what does that mean? And this kind of gets us thinking of, should we think about having contracts with organizations that can come in with private organizations that can come in during the crisis and, and really work in your EOC, trained emergency managers, that know what's going on um, and and do this. So today, uh, well, we have Crucial Staffing on. Anyway, Paul, Paul, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Todd. Big fan of the podcast, and um, I'm thankful for the opportunity. I appreciate it, Paul. I appreciate your time today. So contract workers, this is sort of the world that you live in. Um, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a temporary contract worker in the emergency management world? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a vital function of any emergency response in today's day and age. Um, I think the one common denominator to uh, any disaster is that regardless of the services that are provided, either from the government or from a contractor or even a nonprofit, uh, the common denominator is people, right? right? Everyone needs people to do the kind of work that we do in emergency management. And so that's where crucial staffing comes in. Uh, a very unique uh, staffing company that provides a high volume, uh, rapid response staffing, primarily in the medical world, uh, but increasingly across all uh, a number of labor categories to fill a need uh, for anyone that's working on a response. So the idea of having contract employees coming in uh, during a crisis, is, it's not new, right? I mean, we, we've seen it with, um, I mean, Gosh, go back all the way for a long time, but specifically, you know, in the modern era, if you will, you know, Katrina is a really good example of, of when they started bringing in uh, tons of contract workers to work that thing. Sandy had happened in there. Now, when I say this, it doesn't necessarily have to be for-profit organizations. They're also right. bringing in nonprofit organizations that do do very similar things. So when we talk about this, what let's, let's kind of frame this in the idea that it's those that are outside the organization that normally aren't going to be there that you can rely upon, but you have to have some sort of contract with them to have them come into your EOC or, or your uh, instant command post or whatnot. So what's the, is, what's the history like with, you know, the contract workers or what have they done in the past? Right. I think there's been a significant amount of contract workers involved with every major disaster going all the way back to even Sandy. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that even before that, although I didn't look for, for this, uh, you would see that, right? Because I think that traditionally um, government agencies that handle emergency responses 
you know, they can't keep the number of staff hot on call uh, as much as they would like to handle a major response, right? We saw that in FEMA. Uh, although FEMA has a very robust reservist workforce, on large disasters, they can't do everything by themselves. Uh, and sometimes they require specialties that are outside of the experience of, uh, you know, a reservist cadre. Uh, once you get below the federal level, I think the situation gets even worse. Um, state emergency management agencies are often under-resourced, in my experience. Uh, some are well-resourced, but some are not really well-resourced. And once you get down to the local and city level, they're certainly not very well-resourced and they can't keep people on staff. So when an event happens, uh, they are very dependent on being able to very quickly put contracts into place to provide the services and the associated labor uh, that come with those things. And that's not just uh, medical support, it's everything during a response. It's debris removal and management, it's uh, safety personnel, it's like, as you said, EOC personnel and augmentation for those emergency management staffs and, and a whole host of labor categories, including unskilled labors, right? Mm -hmm. um, and even on a large response, when we're setting up base camps and doing all those things that are very resource intensive, you know, you need a lot of people. So, I, you know, I think that those companies that can do that uh, can be helpful uh, to everyone, not just the government, but everyone that is required in the whole community to respond to a major event. So when we talk about this, you know, if you think about like local governments, um, they rely a lot upon volunteers, whether it's a CERT program or, um, you know, citizen corps programs, if you will. Sure. Um, or, or um, you know, I know the state of California at one point was trying to do the uh, disaster corps, which is sort of like a CERT program larger, right? Uh, programs like that. But however, we're still at that point, you're still relying upon people to take time out of their day, out of their work day if you will, come in to do volunteer hours, which sometimes can be hard. And then, you know, so so maybe something like a reserve corps makes sense. However, there's still an expense associated with that that you have to pay on a regular basis, correct, with a reserve corps? I think so. And, you know, the reality is I think there's enough room. I mean, there's enough requirement, enough room in this world of major disaster response that we need everyone, right? I mean, I don't even think as a, as a person that works for a for-profit company providing staffing services uh, that I would ever say we don't need volunteers. You know, of course we need volunteers, right? Um, you know, if there's a major hurricane, a tornado in Region 7, which is where, where I was the FEMA administrator for, uh, major flooding, uh, wildfires, any type of event, right? Um, we absolutely need uh, government to respond. We need nonprofits to help government to respond. And then there are going to be gaps, even once you consider those available resources. And that's where the private sector comes in. And, you know, we, we should be doing that and we can do that uh, as a service to those communities. Walk me through what a typical process is to get, say, a contract with, with you, right? You're you know, as you're sitting in your EOC, you know, in some small town, um, you know, how, you know, do you just pick up the phone and call you and you guys have people on the way or what's that, what's it look, what's that work like? Sure. It's, and again, it goes back to crucial specialty, right? There's a lot of staffing companies out there, but not a lot of them that can produce the volume at the, uh, at the speed with which we do. Um, 
from the time that we receive an, a requirement, and normally that's in the form of a contract, right? Um, we can activate personnel. Uh, we have over 250,000 professionals across the country that live inside of our database that are qualified to work for us. Uh, we very quickly um, query that database, uh, find out who's available to work. And from the time that we receive that requirement, we're activating that day or the next day, and we're putting people on the ground ready to work within 72 hours, right? I mean, that's the nature of a response. You can't wait much longer or else somebody's, you know, there, there is work that needs to be done, important work, especially when it comes to medical care. Right. So we pride ourselves on being able to uh, fill, completely fill a requirement within 48 hours and have those people on the ground within 72. So uh, on that, and I know we talked um, a little bit about this before regarding like, you know, you guys have almost like an ICS uh, command system. What does it look like from, from your end uh, and, and how, does, how does that work? Sure. It, it, it mirrors ICS. Uh, and so in some states, you know, we, we are running parallel to that. So we uh, utilize uh, personnel, essentially operations personnel uh, called crucial onsite representatives uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the operation to manage all of our employees that are in the field. Um, and uh, we use a structure where we have crucial onsite reps and then we have regional uh, crucial onsite reps. We utilize clinical liaisons at the medical facilities so that they can interface with medical staff on things that are specific to uh, that facility. Uh, and then we also provide liaisons to e either the EOC at the entity level. So that can be a city or a state uh, or a nonprofit uh, in some cases. And, or we provide that from our headquarters here in Kansas City remotely. And so it sort of mirrors the, the command and control structure that's in place with us providing contractor personnel, provided personnel uh, to assist with employee issues, transfers, filling gaps, filling ongoing requirements. All of those things are processed by those people on the ground. In addition to logistics, um, when we deploy people, uh, we we're, we provide all the wraparound as well. We provide lodging and coordinated by Crucial. We provide transportation to and from the worksite. Um, we're paying them, obviously, and providing them with per diem for meals or making provision for meals. So it makes it very easy for uh, whatever entity that hires us because they don't have to worry about all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So Dan Scott, my, my partner, who's not here today for because he's got uh, a lot of stuff going on in his area. He goes, he has a, he types in a question here. He goes, are there any pre-training that takes place in the local EOC prior to staffing that? And I guess I, I guess kind of piggyback on that. Is there any coordination that happens prior? Like do you get to meet the staff before you send there, or is it just cold? Um, generally, our staff are deploying directly from their home to a disaster site or whatever location they're needed. Um, but for people that we're using with the actual um, command and control network, right, our crucial on-site reps and all the way up to EOC liaisons, and we also employ emergency management coordinators here at our corporate office uh, to actually exercise overall control of an event of a disaster. Um, you know, those people do uh, receive a lot of training. Uh, they've been through a variety of FEMA training as well to make them qualified in ICS. 
to make sure that they can go in and, and make sure they understand the rules of the road uh, to integrate with a local state or federal agency that they're supporting. Uh, and then, of course, our staff are all um, trained and certified according to their specialty, right? And part of what Crucial does is make sure we maintain all those certifications. So when we send a nurse somewhere, for example, um, we, we have verified all of those certifications and qualifications, credentialing that a nurse needs to be able to work in a particular area. So again, the client doesn't have to worry about that. Absolutely. Hey, Paul, I want to take a quick break and just kind of mention a few people here. Um, and it's, well, October's here, right? It's, I guess, tomorrow, right, is, is October. And uh, a couple of things that are happening in October is we're going to be down IAM, right? We're going to be going to IAM here uh, in Grand Rapids. And Paul's actually going to be there uh, as well, right? And so if you guys want to go say hi to him, um, he's going to be there. But in addition to this, um, my friend uh, Sean Griffin with his organization, Disaster Tech, they're going to be at IAM as well. And, you know, take your time to learn what Disaster Tech's Dice Solution can help your team plan and exercise across government industry and uh, leverage data and, and risk intelligence and accelerate evidence-based decision-making. And ultimately, that's going to save more lives, more money, and more time. And you can follow them um, on Twitter at Disaster Tech Inc. for more updates. And then Paul and I are actually in November, we're going to be heading over to the uh, Natural Disaster and Emergency Management Expo from the 17th and 18th in New York City and November 17th, 18th. It's going to be at the Java Center in New York City, designed uh, and registered today. To uh, Registering link is down here also. Um, and we'll also put a link in our show notes uh, that you can save um, some money, like $150 off your registration if you register through our link. And I think... Uh, that's, I think, worth your uh, worth your time and money as, as well. And, uh, Paul, why don't you come back on here for a second? So right. I'm going to be in New York City and in um, and in uh, Michigan. Um, what are you looking forward to those two places? You know, I, I was in the military before FEMA, and so I traveled around a lot. But believe it or not, I've never been to the state of Michigan. So, um, you know, this is I'm, I'm going to check another state off my off my list during IAM. I'm excited. It's you know what I'll tell you something about about the IEM in Michigan. I, I went. Uh, it's in Grand Rapids, beautiful little city. Um, everything is walking distance from where you're at. Now, for those of us that are in California, you might want to bring a sweater or something like that because <laughs> November's right. November's a little chilly for uh, for most of those people that have uh, are used to the warm weather. But uh, I, I grew up in New York, so it's not that bad. Like light sweater or whatever would work for me, but. Um, it's, it's a great time. You get to meet a lot of great people. Um, I'm excited about being, going to the conference. I'm also super excited about going to NDEM and NDEM. Well, this is important because crucial staff and actually is a sponsor over at NDEM. Um, I'm going to be speaking to Craig Fugate and, uh, Pete Gaynor, um, about what it is to be an emergency manager at the highest level, uh, working for the president, some of the political stuff. So we're going to have a fireside chat. We're gonna have a great conversation. So hope to see you guys, uh, go there and, and, uh, join us. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, all of these professional development forums, right? I'll be at NEMA, uh, IAM, and then, of course, um, NDEM uh, later this year. And, and, you know, they're important for emergency managers, right? The, and it doesn't matter the type of emergency managers. One of the things that I appreciate a lot about IAM, and I assume NDEM, although I've never attended before, is just the the cross-sector visibility that you get on emergency management as a profession, 
right? And so for me, as, as someone that's been a short time working for FEMA, you know, that, that's my lens, right? But there's a, there's, a, there's a whole host of people out there who specialize in uh, healthcare emergency management and business continuity and folks that are down at the state and local level. Um, and you see all of those people mixing and sharing lessons learned and um, doing some professional development. And that's, uh, that's the thing that I like most about a lot of these different professional forums. That's awesome. Yeah, I do too. Me too. Um, matter of fact, this NDEM is is the first year that they put it on, so we're we're uh, okay. We're breaking new grounds with that. Yeah, that's awesome. One of my students um, wrote a piece regarding the idea of contract workers being the future of emergency management. And I really, I, I was really appreciative of, of the piece that they put in. A lot of research into it, and um, the idea behind it was, hey, you know, cities are, are getting so stretched, and you know, contract workers for cities is, is nothing new, right? And I mean, generally, right? I mean, if you look at uh, uh, Stoddard out of uh, the Lakewood model, uh, you know, it was really the first city in the United States, uh, maybe the possibly the world, that had all contract workers. So their city staff was very small. They contracted with law enforcement. They contracted with fire. They contracted public works. They contracted with their parks and libraries. Everything was 100% contracted out um, as a city. And we see this a lot in California, maybe not as much as back east, but um, that being said, you know, the idea of having contract emergency management, um, you know, again, isn't revolutionary. It's something that's been around for, for a bit. Now, kind of going on top of that, how one of the one of the problems that we have with our students, right, is they, they're having a hard time necessarily breaking in and getting that experience to be an emergency manager at the city level, at the county level. Is working for an organization like yours a great way to uh, uh, break into emergency management? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think it is uh, because, you know, just based on my experience in FEMA, I know how difficult it is for recent college graduates to uh, to break into this profession. You know, now I'm a, I'm a bad example, right? I'm a guy that spent a long time in the military and then transitioned into a senior role at FEMA. And there's a lot of those people that end up uh, portability, you know, they move from their first profession into their second profession of emergency management after, you know, tremendous careers in military, law enforcement, fire service, you name it, right? Um, but the reality is that, you know, I used to, you know, talk with Brock Long a lot about this, right, is the professional uh, professionalization of the emergency management uh, community and building that pipeline all the way from getting a degree in emergency management and then um, allowing for folks to move up, down, laterally, right, into the private sector at the state, local and federal levels, right, so that we get this really well-versed, experienced emergency management workforce. But I think that, yes, in the private sector, there are opportunities. I'll just use our company as an example. Um, we just hired a recent college grad with an undergraduate degree in emergency management, and he's going to be an emergency management coordinator for us. And we're going to train him up, right? And we're going to get start getting him used to managing particular events, right? And it would, I think, under other circumstances, it would be very tough for him to go out and get a job at a county, for example, uh, or the state, or certainly at FEMA, uh, where it's very difficult. But this gives them a leg up, right? And now, you know, even if it's for a few years, he's got some experience behind his name 
And then he can start taking a look at those other positions if he really is serious about pursuing emergency management as a career. Absolutely. You know, it sort of made me think too, was like, maybe we should talk, start talking to like special events, like larger events, um, concerts, things like this to have emergency management professionals working alongside them. Because I mean, obviously, you know, in Vegas, we saw, uh, you know, a concert that went awry really quickly due to, you know, a terrorist attack. Um, you know, so maybe we should, you know, that would be a great idea for, for getting, you know, emergency managers into those things of contract with groups like you. Mark Criddle asked a question. He goes, why do you guys, uh, why do you guys think that especially healthcare, do you not take emergency management, especially disaster response seriously? Most places take a retroactive or reactive, I'm sorry, a stance instead of a proactive stance. Mark, it's a good point. Yeah, it's an extremely good point, right? I mean, even it doesn't matter what sector you represent, private sector, nonprofit or government, right? Even when I was wearing a FEMA hat, you know, we always wanted folks to be proactive. Now, the reality is that we, <laughs> we understand how difficult it is to get people talk about preparedness. It's even harder to get people to take action uh, on preparedness actions. And lots of times that's because people are stuck in operations mode for a long time. And when it comes time to, you know, finish up with a major event, there's just, you know, no bandwidth to try to imagine, you know, how to get ready for the next one. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but we got to do better. Right. We, you know, we, even as a, as a nation uh, with FEMA, FEMA is always sending that message out about being better prepared all the way from the individual up to the local, state, and federal level. Um, I think private sector companies can help with that, right? Um, you know, we want, we don't want to wait for something to happen uh, to then go into some kind of contract negotiation for the services that we provide, right? We would like to have a discussion beforehand with an entity, right? A business, a state, uh, a, a big city, a county uh, about the provision for our services and putting a pre-event contract into place or some type of mem memorandum of understanding or some document that will make it easier when something happens for us to start activating and get people on the ground, right? Because if you don't do that, it can take a little bit of time uh, just to make sure that we all agree on terms. Uh, and that hurts the response. So we want to be part of that solution for sure and help, uh, help everyone out there be a little more proactive. But I, I agree with the, with the, caller's point that, you know, it is very difficult to get folks um, interested uh, in being proactive uh, about thinking about the next thing. You know, I think one of the problems that we have as an industry, you know, those of us that come from that uh, EMS, fire, police, you know, the public service agencies, if you will, um, we are a reactive group, right? We sit and at our station and we wait for the bell to go off to go respond to to that fire or to that call or to that, uh, you know, EMS call. And I think that we bring that, that mentality and, and that, that mental model with us, uh, to emergency management when we transition over to EM. And I think that's one of the issues that we have to really kind of break. I think that's why I love the new people, next generation coming up behind us that weren't necessarily working in that, uh, reactive, uh, industry that would, that are proactive. And, and I think you're going to see, more and more um, emergency management professionals move to that, move to the proactive. And the other side of that too, Mark, um, 
and they're going to answer any question is it really goes all the way up to the C-suite, right? Of those, of those organizations of the hospitals that you're, you're talking about healthcare industry is, is how important is that uh, proactive approach to them? Right. Because at the end of the day, if they're just checking a box for Jayco or whatever, um, you know, they just need to have somebody in that place. Uh, and that's a lot of times what we see with emergency management is it's just that checkbox uh, position or somebody filling that role. And uh, and that, that really, again, takes it away from being um, proactive to a reactive stance when it comes to things. So, yeah, I think uh, so. And Todd, I might add that, you know, I think COVID is teaching us a lot of lessons, right, about healthcare preparedness. And, you know, I, you know, the hope, obviously, is that we don't lose those lessons even as we uh, come out of COVID at some point, right? And that we, we gather all those lessons learned and we act on them to make sure that we are better prepared for the next pandemic uh, than maybe we were this time, mm -hmm. for sure. And, you know, I think it starts with planning too, right? And lots of times we, we do planning, uh, put it on the shelf, right? And that's, I mean, you know, the plan sits there for the length of time that that plan is, you know, good for, right? The plan's good for five years. It sits on the shelf for five years and then we dust it off and we look at it again. But the whole idea of a plan is a living entity uh, that gets looked at uh, frequently and involving everyone that's going to help execute the plan to include the private sector, right? And that's where your pre-event contracting comes in. I think that, you know, companies since they are so active now, they have to be due to the scale and the number of large disasters, you know, reach out to them and have them help you with your planning, right? Mm -hmm. And that will only increase the, the consistency and efficiency with which you execute during the response phase. Absolutely. Um, Michael, he asks, he goes, we read about how FEMA staff fatigue and stretched this. Um, he goes, uh, so is this the time to jump in? I guess he's, so he's kind of agreeing with you that, uh, really kind of supporting, uh, that. And then the preparedness guy comes in and says, we prepare for the last disaster, whatever the most recent scare is people are, where the money goes. That's absolutely true. Uh, we, we, you know, obviously after 9-11, we put tons of money into Homeland Security, emergency, you know, uh, and, and up, upping the ability for law enforcement and whatnot. Uh, I think that's a, uh, you're right now. Here's the interesting thing is we've been planning for, on the emergency management side, for pandemic for many years. Um, this should not have been a surprise to any emergency manager out there. Uh, whether whether the elected officials listen to us or not, that's a whole other story. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, uh, Mark comes back in. He goes, I see in my field private sector takes the stance that we did okay with this incident. <laughs> yeah, I, I th that's, a, that's a problem, uh, Paul. That's a problem where we, we did do okay. You know, um, we, we were able to staff up. We were able to get nurses and doctors um, in, into the areas like New York City when uh, when they were, um, you know, needing it due to companies like yours. You know, do did did the ability for us to respond fairly quickly, you know, although we had hiccups, did that really, does that put us behind on the idea of where people go, oh, we did okay, we can handle the next one? Well, it all depends on your definitions of success, right? I, you know, I think that we, you know, and, and listen, I was, I was in FEMA during that time, right? And I know everything that we accomplished, but, you know, was it as smoothly executed as, uh, as we could? Was it, you know, done to the standard that we wish it could have? Was it, a, was it as collaborative as we wish we could have? And I think the answer is maybe not, right? In some cases, from a staffing perspective, yeah, we, we get the job done, right? And especially as a as a private sector company, right? 
we're, we're going to work as hard as we can to be able to meet those mission requirements, right? Because it's not just about um, business, right? Mm -hmm. For us uh, at Crucial Staffing, it's about, it's about the mission. Um, and I know people will say, oh, yeah, yeah, but you're a company and you get paid lots of money to be able to do this. Uh, but the reality is, um, you know, there are there are plenty of staffing companies that don't live in the disaster world. Um, you know, we we have chosen to live in this world because we see a need. Uh, one of those needs, New York City is a perfect example. Um, we had thousands of nurses deployed in, in New York City, uh, providing a critical capability when emergency rooms were full and we were meeting COVID surge requirements uh, for several times. In fact, we're deploying nurses back to New York City right now as we speak. Uh, so we're there when those states need surge support. Um, you know, I don't know that we'll ever get away with it. I don't know that anybody would ever say that, you know, that's complete success um, because the reality is we were doing it because people were sick. Mm -hmm. uh, and dying in hospitals, and no one wants to see that. But uh, when when an entity needs us, not just crucial staffing, but the private sector in general, we're going to be there. Eileen makes a good point. She goes, how many people actually pull out uh, their pandemic plan in the first six months of COVID? And hopefully everybody did. But the other side of it, though, is you know, even in that plan, if it said, hey, we are going to, you know, use surge capacity staff, you know, whatever, how many of those people actually had contracts in place that, right. that were able to, to pull that trigger? And I think that's the other side of it, too, is that we, you know, we, we tend to think, okay, you know, I'll tell you another, this is a true, true story. We're talking about fuel, right? And uh, we had these, this agreement is not a, not a contract but just an agreement that this fuel company would come and provide fuel uh during during disaster um and uh the fuel company is like well no these we have a, actually a contract with the other people so we're, we you know you're like fourth or fifth out on our list um it, you know so you're you're thinking that you have a contract with somebody when when you don't um they were able to get the fuel company a, a fuel company to come in but there was a bit of a scramble um it was during one of the wildland fires it was a bit of a scramble to get a fuel company in because what they thought they had an, an agreement, it was not an agreement, you know? So, so understanding what your contracts are. Um, and, and, and I think the preparedness guy kind of puts this in here too. He goes vetting your plan. He goes, and it's, right. you know, with exercise, but also vetting your plan into the idea of are your contracts current? You know, is everything ready to go? Uh, don't look at it the day the disaster happens. You should be looking at this on a regular basis uh, annually, you know, at sure. a minimum to see how your contract's up to date. Paul, yeah, I'll use another Brock Long-ism, right? Because I've got plenty of them, having worked for him for a long time. Um, you know, he always used to talk about exercising just your contracting capacity, right? And to exercise your pre-event contracts, which is something that we very rarely do. Um, we do various types of exercises, tabletops, walkthroughs, right? All the way up to full scale. But do we ever just sit down and look at the requirements and see if there's a match between what we expect our requirements to be and the, con the pre-event contracts that we have in place, right? Um, it seems obvious, but, you know, I, I will tell you, you know, you're a lot more experienced than I am, Todd. Uh, but in my short experience, I never saw us do anything like that um, specific to contracting. And I think it's a great idea that, you know, we should, we should be doing more often, right? 
Absolutely, Paul. And I think contracts are definitely the future of what we're doing with emergency management. And, uh, you know, I think we have to take a serious look at, at what it is and organizations like yourselves. And, and I know that you specifically are in the emergency management disaster space. So, you know, I think people should at least at a minimum reach out to you guys to see what you guys yeah. are all about and, and see how For you sure. guys can, can work within them. Paul, how can people find you? Yeah, you can go to our website, crucialstaffing.com, find all the information that's available uh, on that website. Uh, reach out to us. Uh, there's numbers and contact information there. I think, uh, you know, listen, you know, there's a variety of resources that are available, right? And I think that that's going back to your previous point, if I could, you know, that's the thing that we oftentimes um, don't hit on exercises as well, right? There's a, there's a cascading priority of resources that you're going to use for various services during a disaster. And it probably doesn't start with contract services. It probably starts with mutual aid, right? It probably starts with, you know, utilizing National Guard resources at the state level, right? There might be other sources of labor and services and equipment, right? So what you're doing is you're creating a plan that allows you to cycle through those resources. And as you extinguish one, you go to the other and you work your way down the line. And if gaps exist, then you, you start reaching out to the private sector for sure, right? But we're not the only resource out there. Uh, and what we should be thinking about in our planning is the prioritization of those resources and the decision points that we have to, you know, we have to establish to progress from one to the other to the next, right? A great, great point, Paul. We could talk about this all day. We're coming here to the uh, to the end right. of the show. Hey, and also don't forget. Hey, we're both Paul and I. We're going to be at IEM. Um, you know, the next couple weeks here. Uh, you know, starting the seventeenth for me. Uh, you know, getting there on Sunday and getting some stuff done. Uh, and uh, we'll be out there. Oh, I'm speaking there, so I'm excited about that. But uh, I think you guys go on the floor, visit Paul. Maybe he'll buy you a soda pop or something. I definitely will. We're going to have a we're going to have a breakout session on healthcare preparedness that we're excited about with a couple of our clients that will be talking about how to prepare if you're a hospital or another entity. And um, we're we're a main sponsor for IAM, so we're going to be all over the place, and we look forward to meeting everyone. Awesome, good. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, everybody. Thank you for spending time with us today. Um, it's been it's been great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for all the comments, Eileen, the preparedness guy, Mark uh dan who should be here but he's got he's busy now for us uh it's been great having everybody hey listen everybody please remember follow us on facebook you know go over there check us out we have some cool stuff happening over there uh some polls that are happening i'd love to have your word on what's happening uh october starts our um book of the or the books that have to be on the shelf we'll look for that on the the 10 top 10 books they need to be in an emergency manager's bookshelf look forward to that and also please stay safe and stay hydrated